Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming a very special guest to the podcast, the professor of the most popular course at Yale and host of the fantastic Happiness Lab podcast, Dr. Lori Santos. Lori is a professor of psychology and head of Silliman College at Yale University. She's also the director of the Comparative Cognition Laboratory at Yale, which explores the evolutionary origins of the human mind, including what makes our minds unique by comparing the cognitive abilities of human and non-human primates. Her fantastic TED Talk, A Monkey Economy as Irrational as Ours, is a great introduction to some of the material the Cognition Lab focuses on. Speaking of labs, Lori is also the host of The Happiness Lab, which is loosely based on her course at Yale. It's now available for free online as The Science of Wellbeing, and almost 2 million people have taken it around the world, which is an absolutely crazy number. The Happiness Lab finished its first season last year, and they're currently running a series of episodes dedicated to helping people through the coronavirus crisis. Before we get to Lori, I'd like to give you a quick reminder about our new Patreon account. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a variety of great bonuses in return. If you're interested, I'll also include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying the show, if you could take a moment to rate it, subscribe to it, tell a friend about it, you know, any of those little things, they really, really do help us out. So on to Lori. So Lori, uh, thanks so much for taking your time here today. How are you doing during this kind of wild moment in human history? Well, you know, I think I'm surviving maybe as well as everybody else. I think um, I think being someone who's so focused on the science of well-being, it's given me really clear tools that I can put into effect in my own life, which doesn't always make it so that you're putting those tools into effect. Mm. But I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think that helps. Yeah, a lot of empathy for that experience, for sure. Maybe I could follow up on that. Um, from all that you know, do you mind saying uh, personally one or two or three things that you are particularly drawing on to protect and promote your own well-being uh, during this time of the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I think it's so important to know the kinds of things you can do to protect your mental health right now. Like, we know the kinds of things we need to do to protect our physical health, right? We wash our hands, we socially distance. And I feel like that reduces a lot of the uncertainty about, you know, our fear about getting this virus and things like that. We know we're taking agency to, to protect ourselves. And I find so many people are struggling with how they can take agency to protect themselves mentally, right? Like everyone's feeling anxious. Everyone's feeling uncertain. I have so many people that are coming to me, again, not even listeners to my podcast, but just friends who are like, what can mm. I do to feel better? And so so for me personally, the, the one of the things I've been doing is just trying to double down on the things that we know improve well-being generally, like outside of a crisis. One of the big ones for me is sleep. Um, I'm hmm. not great at like sleep hygiene. I tend, even though I have podcast episodes about this, I tend to like look at social <laughs> media right before and like and sleep with my phone and things like that. And I've made a huge concerted effort to be better about that. Hmm. Um, I stop looking at the news now before around 7 p.m. every night and just put my phone away. Um, I did this wonderful episode with Ariana Huffington and she she gave me one of her. She has these wonderful little uh, cell phone beds where you're supposed to put your cell phone like in bed so that you can go to bed and not be. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, and when I got it, I was like, oh, that's cute. But it just kind of sat on my desk and my cell phone never saw this silly cell phone bed. <laughs> but now it, it like dutifully goes to bed around 7 p.m. each night. And I think that's been really powerful just not to kind of right before I go to bed to like spike my stress hormones and spike my sympathetic nervous system. 
And just even when I wake up in the middle of the night, the temptation is not there to like, let me just do a quick check on Google News or a quick look at Twitter. And like, you you know, those things, you're going to just see something that's scary and kind of wakes your body up. So, so sleep's been really huge. The other one that's been really huge for me is like finding ways to have social connection really informally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. I get completely that this time of social distancing is really dangerous to our mental health just because we're not around the people we care about as much. You know, we can't go to the pub with our friends or, you know, I can't, my, my mom uh, has COPD and she lives in a different state. And so she's really vulnerable. I can't like go see her and get a hug, which would be a normal reaction when things are stressful. And mm-hmm. so just building in as much Zoom time as possible uh, is, has been great. And kind of like informal Zoom times, like goofy things on Zoom. Like mm-hmm. I did a spa night with my college roommates who I hadn't seen in a really long time. You know, I do yoga in the mornings with a friend of mine in New York over Zoom, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like not building in these very formal things, but just kind of filling in the informal time. Um, so those, those those both have been really kind of big. Mm-hmm. I, I think the final one, if, if you want more of these tips. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. Uh, the, the final one would be just kind of really trying to pay attention to my own body and what my body's telling me. Um, mm. uh, I maybe like many people, like at the start of this crisis was like, well, I don't have a cough or a fever, but I definitely have shortness of breath because my chest feels like it's incredibly tight right now. And slowly realized that that was actually my own anxiety and my own kind of like, you know, fast breathing and kind of panic stricken kind of reading the news and stuff. And so I've been trying to do a lot of just forcefully kicking in my parasympathetic nervous system with just like noticing that I'm kind of tense and just doing a few deep breaths. Um, It sounds so silly, but it actually works really well to just kind of kick back in that rest and digest, which we all need right now. Yeah, no, I think that that's a a great list and a great summary of a lot of material as well. Um, My girlfriend and partner is a somatic or she's training to become a somatic psychologist. Uh, and I've learned a lot about the primacy of that kind of parasympathetic experience from her. And also just if we've done previous episodes really focused on that idea of trying to calm you have as well, actually, how to stay calm in the midst of a crisis like this. And one reading of your work is that a lot of it, from my perspective, seems to be very focused on the ways in which we're not so different from the animals that are, you know, kind of close to us in the evolutionary change for, chain, for lack of a better way of putting it. And one of the things that you really explore in your work, including in your wonderful TED Talk, is this idea of kind of irrationality or logical error, things that seem kind of baked into the pie of being a human that, are, that we just don't grok very well, mistakes that we make. It's tough enough to make a good decision when circumstances are ideal. So it's really hard to make a good decision when circumstances are not ideal and are stressful and scary, as you were just saying a moment ago. So I'm wondering from either your personal experience or your knowledge of the scientific literature or just looking out at this incredibly kind of cruel social experiment that we have going on these days, do you think that there are any large form, I don't know the right word for it, uh, mistakes, irrationalities, errors of judgment or whatever that people are making these days that are having like real consequences for them? Anything that you're seeing kind of out in the public space? Yeah, I think I think there are big ones that there may be even more just kind of small ones that are having huge negative impact. Like, you know, look at the case of, say, panic buying, right, whether it's toilet paper or food or these kinds of things. I think people get 
scared and they see a threat and, and two things happen. One is that when things are threatening, you really just want lots and lots of resources to kind of protect yourself. But the second thing is like, it just messes with your decision-making. Um, I kind of experienced this myself. I mean, I wasn't out panic buying, but I was just like, let me go to the grocery store and, you know, just get what I need for two weeks. I thought I kind of went in with like a relatively sane, you know, rational, like human mind sort of head. <laughs> but then when I walked in there, you know, there are people with masks and they're like the food yeah. was going and people had mm -hmm. these huge things and i just watched myself just like again not panic by just but like frantically get like random stuff to the point that when i left the sh shop i was like why did on earth did i get like i forgot the things that i was went in there to get and i just got like super random stuff that i was never like i bought a bottle of soap like and i was like we already had soap like why did i you know and so and, <laughs> and that's like you know again me thinking i was going in there in this rational mode i think you know, the, the stress of this stuff, we know that like just stress isn't awesome. It's just like diverting lots of resources away from like, you know, slow mode, rational thinking and moving us to like, you know, quick decisions, just use your heuristics, get in and get out. And that kind of thinking is not great for long-term planning. And so, and I think, you know, a lot of us need to be planning pretty carefully during this crisis because it's a mm -hmm. marathon, not a sprint. And so that's the one that I've seen personally in my life. I think another one is that, you know, we're, our minds aren't super great at processing the statistics of all this stuff. You know, we don't have minds that are built to think about exponential functions and think about, you know, rates of change over time and all these things. And I think that that means that the statistics we think we're inputting when we watch this crisis, you know, our mind is not processing them in nearly the kind of, with the kind of mathematical rigor that a lot of us need to process things. And so I think that really caused me to question like is it a good idea that I'm kind of like soaking up all these statistics all the time and going back to them or is it really just causing undue anxiety in a domain where like either that information wasn't relevant or um or I'm not really understanding it in the right way so mm -hmm. so those are the ones that I see as being the, the big evolutionary things that we know our minds are bad at in terms of decision making I think a lot about how we can have a underlying core of well-being even with around the edges other things happening. And I draw on my own background as a rock climber for a metaphor of that, which is there I am often dealing in very hazardous situations, particularly when I was climbing a lot more than I am now at my age, <laughs> um, standing on edges, the width of a pencil, if not thinner, in very dangerous environments, while also having a wonderful feeling of strong, capable coping, being energized, but within reason, a sense of camaraderie and trust with others who are with me, even though the wind is whistling and we've got to get off this cliff before it really starts to rain. And so I wonder what your research can offer about how people can preserve an underlying core of contentment and meaning and purpose, let's say, and other and positive emotion, even as they're dealing with lots and lots of tasks, speeding up to deal with stuff, worried about others, having the sense, let's say, of moral outrage floating around the periphery much of the time, at least my own case. How can people do that from what you've learned in your work? Yeah, I think I think the first step to doing that, to kind of making sure you're feeling positive, even in the face of this yucky crisis, 
the first step is really overcoming a little bit of guilt about that. And I see this a lot, right? Um, I've even gotten this as feedback on some of the podcast episodes where people say, you know, how dare you be asking people to be happy in this time when people are dying, right? You know, this isn't a time to be happy. This is a time that we all need to be miserable. And so I have a couple of reactions to that. One is, um, you know, ultimately, like being anxious and miserable isn't going to be great for our bottom line. Our bottom line right now is to make sure we're as physically safe as possible so we can flatten the curve and just protect ourselves and our family. And like spiking our sympathetic nervous system with panic and anxiety is not the best way to kind of like make sure our immune function is at its like max performance. And so part of my response to that is that finding ways to have some positive emotion and a break from all the negativity is actually just good for your own immune function. It's going to help you get through this crisis. It's going to help your family get through this crisis. Um, the second thing is that, you know, it's really, even in the most of awful situations, we can find joy. We can find the silver lining. And that doesn't undermine the fact that there are really nasty, awful things going on. You know, people are dying. People are really suffering. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else has to be as, you know, as miserable as possible. Like, if anything, you know, the best case scenario is to find as many positive features in the midst of this crisis as we can. And so, but I think that's really important because I think people, people have a hard time with like, yeah, let's be positive in the face of this stuff. It's like, well, somebody just died, you know, people are losing their lives. And it's like, yeah, but that it's still probably better for us to make as much of a positive situation with this as we can. And so I think with that realization, you know, what can people do to do that? I, I think part of it is just kind of going back to the basics, you know, what are the things that allow you to feel joy in your own life? What are the things that allow you to feel joy with your family, with your kids? How can you build more of that in to your daily activities? And I think a lot of that needs to be a little bit more intentional than is typical. You know, we tend to find joy naturally, but here I think we need strategies for that. Um, part is through your behaviors. So you're building in things that feel fun and that feel leisurely that kind of get you away from the crisis. Um, part of it is like a mindset of like really looking for the joy a lot more actively than maybe you did before, kind of seeking out like that silver lining, you know, around the yucky things that are happening. Um, but I think part of it's kind of a, a framing effect that, you know, we there are always worse things in the world um, when you look out there. I had this really fun episode of our podcast where we interviewed this guy, Bill Irvine, who has this book called The Stoic Challenge. And he has this idea that whenever we're dealing with adversity, we should put our kind of game faces on like game on, like this is this fun challenge that we can get through with lots of positive <laughs> emotions. And I really love that framework for, for this crisis because it's like, no, it's, it's a choice how I frame this. I could have this sort of woe is me frame, or I could have a like, let me look for the blessings. And, and if you start looking, there are some, you know, many of us might've like fantasized about having weeks at home with our partners and our kids without many work commitments, you know, something <laughs> that, right. you know, yeah. I mean, I think most of us were thinking like fuzzy socks and a nice glass of rosé, not like <laughs> trapped in a horrible pandemic, but, but again, like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of this weird blessing, you know? Um, and so I think it's okay to recognize those blessings. It's important to do that. That's what's going to give us the resilience to kind of get through this marathon of a crisis that we're all facing. How did you develop the, this orientation yourself? I mean, were you always a relatively cheerful, resourceful <laughs> <laughs> person? Uh, or like me, did were you pretty miserable as a kid, which then oh, set yeah. you on like, your journey? We're, we're a simpatico, like so, so no. Like, so I was, I like by nature, I'm a very not stoic, overly emotional and anxious kind of, you know, glasses half empty kind of person. 
Um, This whole approach developed when I took on this new role at Yale as a head of college, you know, so you mentioned that I'm a head of Silliman College at Yale, what that means is I live on campus with students. And so I was seeing this mental health crisis up close and personal, like where students were just you know, reporting that they were too depressed to function many days of the week or just so anxious they were having panic attacks over whether or not they were going to get an internship. I was just seeing that they were just much more unhappy and stressed out than I expected. And so I started learning more about positive psychology and all these techniques almost as an attempt to help them with the idea that if I could just you know develop a class on this, I could give these students strategies that would really allow them to help themselves. Um, I didn't realize how much it was going to help me, you know, in the process. I mean, I did a little, it was kind of like, you know, a little me search as I was going into that stuff and noticing that some of the worst stuff I saw in them, I had too, you know, um, but, but it really was kind of about them and sort of giving them strategies. But, but what happened was now I'm the professor who teaches this class. Like I have to practice what I preach or it looks, you know, really <laughs> pathetic. And it's more like, especially in the live class, like my students will just call me out on it. They'll just be like, you know, they, I'm head of college. They call me Hawk Santos. Like Hawk Santos, like you weren't at the meditation class today or like, you know, you didn't make it yoga this week. And it's like, okay, you know. So, so they will call me out on it. But, but, you know, like all the data suggests, if you do these activities, you will start feeling better. And I, and I definitely, you know, have noticed a huge difference in my outlook, in my general anxiety levels, in my overall, like, self-reported happiness. Like, it works if you do it. You have to get yourself to do it, but it does work if you do it. To turn to the, the course at Yale real quick, um, which you just mentioned, it's obviously extremely popular. There's an online version that's been created that's freely available. Uh, I signed up for it. About 2 million other people have also signed up <laughs> yeah. for it. So you're doing pretty well there. And I, I just, I'm curious, I'm kind of reflecting back to myself as a first year freshman undergrad going to college, thinking about dropping into that environment. And with that hat on a little bit, is there anything that is particularly shocking to the kids when they get in the room? Like what's what's a first thing that they learn or a second thing that they learn or a third thing that they learn that you found consistently just comes as a real surprise? Yeah, well, the class really starts with all the misconceptions we have about the things that make us happy, which I think are, are somewhat universal. You know, so these are things like, you know, we expect that money is going to make us happy. You know, if I was just rich and had all the material wealth that I wanted, I would be good. And, you know, we walk through the data that that's not totally the case. I mean, it is the case that if you're living below the poverty line, more money will improve your well-being, it'll reduce your stress and so on. But for most people who are kind of reasonably middle class, getting more money, the research suggests, is not going to improve their well-being at all. And that's one that the students like actively hate. Like they will come up to me after class. There'll be a big line. And when I present it, there's a big line of them like, all right, but what if you spend your money in a different way? Or what if you come from a poorer family or all this stuff? And it's like, look, I'm showing you the graph. Like that's what the graph shows. So um, that's one they fight about. Another one that they fight about a lot is in the context of grades and happiness. Um, mm. So it turns out there is a correlation between high school and college grades and well-being, but it's a negative correlation. In other words, the students who get the best grades are actually the ones who show the lowest levels of well-being on average. They also show the lowest levels of self-esteem on average and the lowest levels of optimism. And so that's another one that they fight about a lot because especially at Yale, these kids have been on a trajectory where they've thought that, you know, academic performance and academic perfection is the path to, you know, well-being and happiness and a good life. And for me to pull that one out from under them also feels really stressful. So I get the big line of students about like, you know, 
but what if I can't get into medical school? And, da, da, da. and so, <laughs> so yeah, so, and, and that's one of the reasons we start the class like that. I think it's, you know, as you've seen in the podcast, it's so important to deal with the misconceptions first, because even if you're giving people positive advice, if they're like, yeah, 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 but also make money or yeah, 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 but also study so hard that I can't sleep. It's like, you have to clear up the stuff that people are getting wrong so they can put in the right ha- positive habits. It seems to me that a lot of what we do when we try to be happier ourselves in, in the best sense of that word or help others is we try to filter out the pitfalls of certain things while maintaining and protecting what's beneficial about them. So for example, a person could be ambitious and and want to master things and acquire knowledge and and the marker of that is let's say good grades and that's nice it's kind of like frosting on the cake mm-hmm. without necessarily uh, getting hijacked by the pitfalls of excessive self-criticism fierce negative competition with others endlessly comparing you know what they've done today to what they were wonderful about yesterday so in other words it's not so much that the pursuit of let's say ambition um, uh, is problematic per se. It's the add-on excess baggage we we accumulate with it. So I wonder how you help people or think about this yourself. It's just sort of sorting it out. You know, you can protect, let's say, healthy ambition without carrying on the, the allostatic load, the stress burden of all the costs that can come with it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think there's maybe two ways to think about it. One is, you know, what is the ambition about? Right. And so I can see for my students that, you know, the, the hope is that, you know, the reason hopefully, you know, their parents emphasize grades and these kinds of things is they wanted their students to like learn stuff. They wanted them to gain skill sets that would be useful in the world later. They didn't necessarily care that they got exactly an A in microeconomics their sophomore year. Right. <laughs> and so it, it's partly trying to to teach students about the difference between intrinsics and extrinsic rewards, right? To get them to realize that the grade was a different kind of thing than the intrinsic reward of learning or liking what you're doing or being motivated so that you can kind of get to the next level and achieve. Um, I think that those things get confused and they get confused often in a really insidious way where the focus on these extrinsic rewards can make you hate the thing that you first started going after. Um, so another thing we know from the grades research is that the students who get their best grades often now nowadays report that they like school the least. And it's in part mm. because they're so focused on this extrinsic reward that they've kind of killed the internal passion that goes with learning and so on. So I think that's part of it is this distinction between, you know, what are you really trying to get out of this focus? And then the second thing is exactly what you said, which is trying to work through some of the pitfalls of those kinds of approaches, right? It doesn't work as well if you're doing this in a kind of really fixed mindset, right? Where either you're good or you're not, and you're beating yourself up about your performance. Um, it doesn't work as well if you're engaged in, you know, really painful social comparisons, comparisons with yourself or what you could have been and so on. And so I think part of it is also working through like the strat- the, the problems that come up and the bad strategies we use to go after our goals, which, you know, done a little bit differently could be really powerful. And, and often those take on very specific behaviors that we want students to engage in. You know, for social comparison, part of it is making sure that you're not looking to people, you know, on things like social media platforms and that kind of stuff. Like really try to find ways to focus on your own achievements. That can be a really powerful strategy for students. Quick question. Forrest has a poster here kind of behind us, and it says basically <laughs> things I things in my personal backpack that I carried way too long. Okay. So for you, in terms of these pitfalls or sort of, you know, unnecessary burdens, is there one in particular that you've uh, been practicing with shedding yourself? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like there's so many as like picking one, but um, <laughs> I think a big one is, uh, and, and one that I'm experiencing a lot during COVID-19 is just trying to have a little bit more self-compassion. Mm. Um, you know, I tend to be the kind of person who who beats myself up about not doing enough. You know, I won't kind of praise myself for the 700 emails I got through. I'll be upset that there were 10 in my inbox that I didn't get to or something like that. And so trying to allow, give myself a break first. Um, and when I do that, notice what it feels like, notice what it feels like when I'm not beating myself up. Um, as I said, I think that's especially powerful in this current crisis we find ourselves in mm-hmm. because, you know, that I think that's, that's the most painful thing I hear from folks, you know, I hear from first responders and healthcare workers who are just going through an awful time of this. And they, it's not even so much that they're suffering from all the things they're going through. It's like they're suffering most because they're beating themselves up over the fact that they're not doing more. And it's like, you know, we can't control the number of respirators or the number of masks or the number of people who catch this disease, but we can control you beating yourself up for not doing more. Like that's a thing that's in your control. And so I've been trying to embody that myself of, you know, watching and paying attention to what it feels like when I'm signing up for too much or kind of feeling guilty, like I'm not doing enough and trying to get better about that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And it's definitely something that so many people are wrestling with these days. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies. And one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms, without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging. 
directly with their proprietary OSO1 peptide. The OSO1 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OSO1 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. A lot of what you're pointing to here in terms of social comparison, too much social media, the the um, importance of self-compassion, whatever it might be, these seem to me when we talk about them to be kind of quote-unquote human problems. And I think that we have this preconception that we humans are just kind of the best at everything, kind of period, full stop, we are better at all the things, they are all worse at all the things than we are. So I have to kind of ask, do you think that there's anything that we can learn from monkeys or other animals that could be useful these days? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a lot. Um, I mean, I think one great thing about being a monkey is that you might not have the kind of future oriented thinking that we have, you know, that, that sucks if you're trying to like build a bridge or like plan to build an awesome tool (laughs) or like getting some food or something. But it's really awesome in a time where our future thinking is like, you know, is my mom going to die? Am I going to have enough toilet paper? Are we going to get through this crisis? Are classes going to get canceled into the fall? None none of those thoughts are helping me or allowing me to problem solve. They're just kind of getting me stuck in this sort of ruminative emotion cycle. Um, the, the monkeys have threats that are physical f- threats in the present. You know, that's what their sympathetic nervous system responds to. But my poor dumb sympathetic nervous system has to respond to threats that aren't even here and now. They're imaginary, you know, counterfactual threats that may never come to pass. And so in some ways, I wish we could all be a little bit more like the monkeys, which is to kind of be in the present moment a little bit more and not ruminate about the future or the past and stuff, which is kind of funny because if you talk to people who you know, focus on meditation, particularly from a Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of talk of the monkey mind. You know, when people refer to the monkey mind, they mean the part of the mind that's wandering and ruminating and so on, which I feel like is such a diss to the monkeys because the monkey mind is actually probably (laughs) much more savoring and in the present than the human mind. So it's like, that's the human mind. The monkey mind is like on point. So um, yeah, I think, I think we can, you know, learn from them that they're just, you know, they're just there and they're just in the present. They're not thinking of a counterfactual about what life could be like. And even though that does help us in some contexts, I feel like in this context, you know, I wish I could shut that part of my human mind off a bit more. Yeah, I think you're speaking there to this idea of being able to capture the benefit of mental time travel, right, into the past or the future without being captured by it and living in regrets about the past and or worries about the future. Be able to do both and to be able to move back and forth between them. So I want to ask you questions as a scholar in this area. So, well, this is actually a question that starts uh, with the human part. So in your TED Talk, for example, you talk about uh, New World monkeys and uh, how who split off in the tree of evolution, as it were, from our human branch around or the branch that ended up with us uh, about 35 million years ago. And you have a lot of obvious affection for these monkeys when you talk about them. 
And so here you are, someone who is imagining your way into the mind of another species to some extent, which is a little bit like imagining your way into the mind of another human being. And I wonder how it's affected you or touched you or what the takeaways have been for you, for you to have such empathic contact uh, with uh, non-human primates. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, if there's a consequence for my interaction with humans, it's that, I mean, I think I tend to see the the evolved side of humans more than I might otherwise. If anything, it makes me watch human interactions through the eyes of how I watch the monkeys. You know, like when I watch people, you know, like on my team get in a fight and then they're kind of apologizing. I'm like, oh, they're grooming or like, you know, it's a dominance interaction. And so yeah. it's, it's kind of just, you know, watching the world through the kind of animal video lens a little bit more. But, um, but, but in all honesty, I think, you know, when you watch these animals, you realize they're, you know, they're so much like us, but also so different than us. They, you know, they have the same problems, you know, they want their families to do well, they want to do well, they have their own kinds of ambitions, they just want to be safe and happy. But they're trying to navigate all those struggles using completely different tools than we have. They don't have language, they don't have cell phones or the internet. And it's like, it's fascinating to see them as going through a lot of the same kinds of struggles, but in this way, that's so different. Um, And it, yeah, it's just when you watch them at any length, you just get so curious about what's special about us and, and how much we're like them. And it's kind of just fascinating. Uh, given some of the controversies about non-human animal research, especially on primates, I wondered, I wanted to give you just an opportunity to briefly summarize how you treat these beings well. Yeah. So when we had the, I mean, this, the, the Ted talk work is actually quite old now. We actually don't have the colony of capuchins now they've actually retired um, to a retirement facility. But when we had them on campus, you know, it was really my goal to treat them, you know, as ethically as possible. It's one of the reasons I work with new world primates is that they're smaller and we knew we could, um, we could create their social relationship in a smaller space, right? It wasn't like working with apes where I just wouldn't have the resources or the square footage, honestly, to do that quite well. Um, the primates that we work with now are all free-ranging primates who live in naturalistic situations. And I think that that is best for two reasons. One, I think it's the most ethical way to be working with primates, but it's also the way that you get their cognitive abilities in the way that those cognitive abilities were built, right? They're forming Mm. their natural social relationships. They're going through their natural problems. So when you're studying them, you're kind of studying them in the way that they were kind of built to be uh, in a wildish environment. So so that's kind of how we've dealt with it now is to really be focused on the kinds of experiments we could do with animals who are free ranging. Um, And then the other population we work with a lot these days is domesticated dogs. Um, That's who we work with on campus. And those dogs are, are living in their own environment that they were evolved to live in, which is like, with humans and with us. So we bring in pet dogs. We don't have any dogs in cages or anything. We have pet dogs who come in for studies, just like human kids and humans come in for studies. I wonder if I could ask you a a last, for me, completely geeky question. So here it is. (laughs) So you you study, um, we could say, among other things, you study errors of reasoning, kind of characteristic, repeated patterns of errors of reasoning. And you find similar errors of reasoning in many cases between humans and our distant cousins, these capuchin uh, new world monkeys that we diverged from 35 million years ago. And yet these errors of reasoning have been conserved over time. And so it suggests to me that there could well have been some sort of adaptive advantage, reproductive advantages as it were, in making these errors or uh, the ways in which they might benefit 
uh, evolution at the level of the group, not just at the level of the individual, et cetera. So what do you think are some of the benefits, particularly in the natural environments that uh, the Capuchins live in today or that we humans have lived in until <laughs> quite recently in making these kinds of mistakes? Yeah, well, I think it depends on the particular kind of mistake because there, again, there are two possibilities. One is that there was some adaptive benefit. In other words, having that strategy increased the survival and reproductive success of the animals who had that strategy somehow. The other possibility is like, it wasn't so detrimental that it got weeded out. You know what I mean? It was just kind of lying, or it was like either the best of a bad situation, or it was kind of a kludgy, you know, like not so complicated response. It was just easier or something like that. So another possibility is it wasn't adaptive per se, but it wasn't so bad in the evolutionary environment that it was hurting individuals. Um, you know, which it is, is really tricky and might be different for the different biases. Uh, in my TED talk, I talk specifically about a, a set of decision-making biases um, related to human loss aversion. So the fact that we kind of overweight losses and we kind of frame things in terms of this negativity bias. And I think that could be a domain where we really do see some uh, evolutionary benefit. You know, if you were a, a creature that was really threat oriented and you, you know, saw things in terms of its negative value, you would notice those threats and react to them. And you might kind of overweight the yucky stuff over the good stuff that might be a positive value. Mm. Um, in the TED talk, I also talk about um, these different framing biases. In other words, we don't necessarily see things in objective terms. We tend to frame them in different ways, depending on what the situation gives us. And I think that might be more one of these ones that you know, it's not necessarily good for our species or it was good over evolutionary time. It just wasn't that bad. It didn't mess us up that, that much in our evolutionary day. Um, but honestly, those are hard things to ask. You know, I wish they had anyone who studies animals and is interested in these evolutionary questions wishes they had a time machine so they could go back and do studies <laughs> on our ancestors. Or, or, or control over a series of parallel universes where you could just exactly. run the clock 35 million years ago under different conditions. Yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah. But, but you know, the NIH doesn't fund those, nor does the physical <laughs> universe allow for those right now. So, so we do our best with the species we can study. Mm, that's great. That kind of reminds me of something you said early on that really caught my ear. Here you are, really a world-class expert on well-being, so knowledgeable. And then you said kind of ruefully, when I remember to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think about the kind of a proverb that the most important thing is to remember the most important thing, that process of recollectedness. So I wonder how you help yourself to remember the most important thing, especially some of the important things that you tend to not remember, even though intellectually you know they would be good for you. Yeah. I mean, this is hard. And honestly, I think this is the million dollar question for well-being research and well-being interventions, but also for any kind of intervention. You know, we were talking about the monkey work on saving and decision making. You know, it's the same thing there. Like we can, the, the, a deep tragedy of the human mind is that we can know what we're supposed to do, but we don't necessarily act on it. Um, and I think, you know, there's lots of reasons for this. One, neuroscientifically, again, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but, you know, there's work suggesting that the circuits that allow, that the circuits that allow us to crave things and want things in the world are different than the circuits that allow us to like things in the world. Mm -hmm. And so you see this dissociation most pronouncedly with people in the context of addiction. So a heroin addict who's been on heroin for a while has this incredible craving for a drug, you know, they'll steal from their family. But then when they finally get the drug, they're absolutely habituated to it. So they don't even like it or enjoy it as much as the, so the craving and the enjoyment are kind of dissociated. Um, I think the problem is that we don't have great craving for the things we're really going to enjoy in life. You know, mm -hmm. like, and I don't, I don't like crave like sleep. I mean, you get sleepy, but it's not like I will get rid of all social media and everything else in my life to prioritize sleep. 
Um, some people I think crave like cardio exercise, but I'm not one of those lucky people. I have to like <laughs> rationally remember that this is a good thing for my mental health and put it into effect. And so I think, you know, that is the big puzzle is that we don't, you know, the craving allows us to remember if we have this inbuilt biological hmm. thing that causes hmm. us to seek stuff out like we do for like sugar or sweet things or, or drugs or something like I that. I like that line a lot. I think that's a great line. The craving allows us to remember. I don't know. You could kind of yeah, put that yeah. up, up on the wall right there. It's kind of true. Yeah. But the sad thing is we only have craving. We only have the craving for certain stuff, which is kind of a bummer. I wish I wish I had craving for you know, doing nice things for others, for getting onto my yoga mat, for getting onto my meditation cushion every day. Um, I wish I had circuits that just made me want that as much as I want, like, you know, an ice cream sundae or something like that. Well, just like you're saying, it strikes me that one of the keys to a long and happy and contributing life is to learn how to help yourself increasingly want the things that are good for you and others that you don't naturally want, right? So- Back to you. Uh, how do you help yourself start to want more of the things that are good for you? How do you see that as a process of learning fundamentally that you're uh, guiding uh, inside your own mind? Yeah, I think for me, there's two ways. One, one is a very intellectual way, and that is through the science. You know, as I see the graphs on this stuff, I'm like, you know, you, you look at the graphs on meditation. I'm like, do I want to be here in my anxiety levels or here? And I'm like, well, if I, you know, <laughs> prioritize meditating five minutes a day, I'm going to be at that part of the graph. And so that's very intellectual. And I think what, what that does is it causes me like in my rational head to put into effect situations that help, you know, like I put my meditation cushion out or I put it in my calendar. I'm doing these very you know, human mind forward thinking things to build situations that make it a little easier for me. I think the second way really is is more of an attempt to try to build up those cravings, although not exactly in that way. It's it's trying to be mindful of how I feel when I do the good things versus the, the absence of those good things. So you internalize the rewards, essentially. Exactly. And, and there's some work from folks like Hedy Kober's lab and others suggesting that that mindfulness over when you're experiencing the reward can kind of start hacking that craving circuit just a little bit. Um, you know, and so, so after my yoga class, I really make a point to sit there afterwards and feel what it feels like, notice what it feels like to have moved my body in this way and to have stretched out and to be like, oh, that actually felt, that felt kind of good. Um, or after meditation in particular to like stop and realize like, oh, I feel so much more centered. You know, my breath feels good. Like this, I feel really calm. This feels really nice. Um, but but again, it takes this kind of explicit moment to be mindful about how you're feeling. And then the flip side too, right? You know, after I've, you know, have the craving to just like binge watch something stupid on Netflix afterwards, be like, <laughs> how do I feel right now? Like I kind of feel yeah. yucky and apathetic and that sort of wasn't what I was intending, right? Yeah, that's been a huge one for me, for sure. That that experience of the um, the suffering that can accompany a theoretically enjoyable activity has definitely been a big motivator in my own life. Yeah. And for me also, you know, like the, the kind of Netflix gross stuff, but also like unhealthy eating, you know, I feel like this is another thing I'm struggling with in this pandemic, you know, we're trapped in our house, you know, where the cupboards are there, we have stocked them in our panic buying often not with the things that are like super healthy. And so, you but know, you again, have so much soap. I have so much help too. Yeah, I also have like lots of like Cadbury cream eggs and things like that too. But <laughs> but again, it's like noticing, you know, you pop one of those and I was like, how do I feel? I don't feel satiated. I just immediately want another one or like, 
I feel kind of jittery. And so that form of noticing can hack the craving system. It can kind of update your preferences in, in that very local way. But I also think it too takes work. You have to remember to do that afterwards. Um, and mindfulness, especially in this kind of frantic moment, can be kind of hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, it, it's so simpatico with what Rick spent so much of his work and time on, which is this idea of taking in the good, which is basically those little micro moments, exactly as you're describing, of noticing that you're having a good experience and internalizing the experience. Or, you know, this isn't so much a focus of your work, Dad, but on the flip side, noticing you're having a bad experience. Oh, yeah, learning from it, that too. Absolutely, absolutely learning from yeah. that as well. You yeah, know, very, yeah. very much the same thing. Yeah. So when we talk to people who have a really, really strong research orientation or research background and are just extremely on top of the body of knowledge inside of a field, one of the things that I love to ask about is, what are you really looking forward to learning about? So to put it another kind of way, like where is the field going? What are some of the current lines of research that are particularly interesting? Maybe to put it another kind of way, if you could have the answer to one question inside of your field, what would the question be? I think it's actually the one that we were just talking about, about how mm. to like how, how to make these interventions the kind of thing that you crave, like all the bad stuff, like how to make them stick, right? How to make it easier to do them. Because again, that, that's a thing that I think plagues research. The dirty secret of a lot of behavioral interventions is that they work when people are doing them. But if you come back six months or a year later, they're not sticking in the way that you think. Um, we have a, in, in season two of the podcast, we have this wonderful um, interview uh, with the guy who does a lot of the work on blue zones, um, Dan Butner. Um, and he has this really scathing thing to say about my podcast and all these interventions. He's like, you know, there's tons of work on like gratitude journals and going to the gym and all this stuff, but nobody sticks with it. He's like, you're not changing anything. What you need to do is to fully change the structures and the situations. That's what's really going to take effect. And so it's a damning critique of some of the stuff we talk about in the podcast, but it, it, it also raises this idea that what we need to be doing now, the, the future of this research is to ask, okay, those things work if you can get people to do them. How do we get people to do them naturally? Either how do we set up the right situations, which is kind of what Jan Buettner has talked about, or how can we set up the right motivations, the right cravings, the right desires to do this stuff in people? Um, and that is going to be the holy grail for getting this stuff to stick. Mm. I think you're exactly right about the Holy Grail. Um, and for me to frame it, it's the movement from state to trade in a mm -hmm. simple yeah. sense, particularly, yeah, social, emotional, motivational, somatic, um, intrapersonal, interpersonal learning of all kinds. How do we help passing experiences leave lasting residues behind in neural structure and function, in effect, so that we begin to have increasingly a state to trade to state upward spiral, right? Uh, that is really the key question. And, and for me, it's been striking as a longtime therapist, in some ways, someone who's in the growth game, the growth business, in many kinds of ways, uh, including um, teaching meditation, self-help, and but as well, classic clinical psychology. Uh, teachers in grade school have a theory of learning routinely, a kindergarten teacher, a fourth grade teacher. They have some notion about what's actually promoting of learning in the academic cognitive domain for their kids and including increasingly a focus on teaching children to learn to learn. In other words, how do they, how can they, children, let's say, acquire internal skills of various kinds that then promote the processes of memory broadly defined. Mm -hmm. And yet in the field of psychotherapy and related fields of counseling and now positive psychology, there's basically no theory of learning. And there's definitely no 
a systematic effort to teach people how to engage mental factors themselves while they are experiencing things to increase the conversion rate from state to trait, from experiencing to learning again and again and again. So they themselves are increasingly the driver of that upward spiral. So you could probably tell that this is a passion for me and a, a deep interest <laughs> and one that I've definitely rattled on for a really – rattled on about it for a long time because I think it is the key. I think that uh, you know, being able to have states or experiences, as Dan says, is easy. It's pretty easy unless someone's profoundly depressed or in terrible pain or has shocking loss. You know, having states is easy. Experiences are easy. It's the internalization of those experiences so that they make actually a lasting difference to a person's moods or skills or attitudes or, you know, capabilities of various kinds over over time. And so to me, that's the strength of strengths learning is, you know, mm. the one that grows the rest of them. Yeah, we want to put ourselves out of business so that people get to the point they're like, they don't need my class or the podcast, you know, that it's just been, you know, a part of their life that would never go away because it's so deeply neurally entrenched and, and it's much better. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really glad that that is being um, studied, you know, in a more formal way. In my own case, um, you know, I've developed a number of methods pragmatically for them. I'm not a researcher. I'm a clinician, really, although I consume a lot of research. And it's really been startling as I've pulled together whatever research does exist here in the internal factors, the internal factors that uh, tend to increase individual gains, you know, so in terms of individual differences. What are those internal factors? And it's just been a feel, I think it's full of opportunity, you know, yeah, that territory. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and, and how, and, you know, what it's going to look like, because I think, you know, there are some proponents like people like Dan Buettner think, you know, the mind's just not built for that kind of learning, or it's just not going to be easy to do that. The right way to do that is to get yourself to set up situations that really work. And again, it's not just Dan in the modern age, like this is what Aristotle thought, right? Aristotle thought that like in some sense, virtue was setting up virtuous situations. It wasn't like kind of waiting for your mind to be virtuous, probably wasn't going to do that, but if you set up the right situations. But then there's other work, you know, again, coming out, I think, out of some of the work on addiction and mindfulness, suggesting that there's some forms of these mindfulness practices that can allow us to reshape what craving looks like and reshape what desire looks like. Um, and so I think, you know, there are different kind of approaches, whether it's set up the right situations or find ways to get this ingrained neurally. I don't know what's going to win out, but I think it's, it's a set, it's an active area of research right now. And I think all the more important, because again, we don't want people to do these interventions once and change the, the state. We want to turn these into traits somehow. Yeah, I think both are true. Um, in other words, our circumstances uh, in various ways can promote states. And also there can be the internalization of those states in the acquisition, let's say, of trait gratitude, trait compassion, trait self-respect, trait uh, disinterest in the appeals of the Cadbury bar, let's say, right? We can, <laughs> and it is very clear, contra Dan, that uh, there are many, many people who actually do acquire beneficial traits over time. Yeah, I'm using the word trait in a very broad sense here. They actually do become reliably more grateful or compassionate or altruistic over time. That really is possible to develop over time. And um, I think like so many things, it's worth studying the people who do develop in those ways over time and explore what were some of the factors, not just external factors or behavioral factors, but internal, yeah. um, active, what are they mental factors. Yeah. yeah, while they're having those experiences. So like Forrest was saying, they really can help them sink in. Yeah. So one of the, uh, to kind of wander toward our end here, Laurie, thank you so much for taking the time here. 
And I thought that was a wonderful and fascinating conversation there, guys. So as an outsider to the territory, I really enjoyed that. Right, we like really nerded out for it. No, I thought it was great. I loved it. It was awesome. Stay it was, it was perfect. Stay yeah. <laughs> Um, what are the allusions you've kind of made here a couple of times, Laurie, a little, uh, I mean, very self-effacingly has been to your own kind of, oh, you know, I wish I did that more often or oh, I haven't necessarily always been that kind of a person and, and really being open about your own kind of learning learning journey with this material, which I empathize with. It's something I talk about frequently on the podcast, the ways in which I used to be a certain kind of way. And hopefully I've worked with that over time a little bit. Um, but if you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself as a, a child, a young adult, I like to think myself about like seventh grade as the nadir of my own personal happiness. Uh, if you could go back in time and, and talk to that girl, what would you want to say to them? Like, what would you want to leave them with or let them know? Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, one of the things I would want to do is to show like seventh grade me some of the scientific work on this stuff, right? Is mm -hmm. like to do something to convince seventh grade me that this is worth it. This isn't a bunch of platitudes or like, you know, granny wisdom. Like this is the kind of thing that's going to help your performance. It's the kind of, kind of thing that's going to help your resilience. It's going to be the kind of thing that matters for a lot of the things you seventh grade Laurie really care about. Um, and it's one of the reasons that a, a next project we have coming up, um, we'll see you know, how quickly this project comes up with the COVID and all these changes. But um, we were planning to do a version of the happiness class for middle school and high school learners. Mm, um, where awesome. it's sort of, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the same features where we're showing them some of the evidence, but introducing these practices early. And I think, you know, I wish seventh grade me had learned how to meditate. I wish I'd been doing a gratitude journal, you know, since I was in middle school. I think these things could be really, really powerful for younger learners. And then you get these habits in and I think you have more time for people to realize these things are working and, and to get to this kind of state trait distinction. I think the stuff we get in early on is more likely to become a trait, mostly just because it's, you know, we've been doing it longer than we would have when we started as an adult. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I mean, before we wrap up here, Laurie, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about? Anything you're working on outside of, you know, season two of the Happiness Lab coming up? Yeah, no, I think, you know, check out season two of the Happiness Lab, where we'll be talking about a lot of these different themes. Um, and if you haven't checked out the Coursera class, the science of well-being, um, that's also another way to really dig in, just like my Yale students were asked to do and commit to doing some of these interventions on yourself. Wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, completely a pleasure. Really all the way around in any which way we can support what you do. We'd love to. Uh, it's such a service to to the world, including what you're developing for middle schoolers and maybe adolescents in general. Well, ditto. I, again, I think you know that people have a lot of different notions of what clinical therapy feels like and what mental health feels like. I think the more we can give people some of these tools and tips on the podcast in a podcast format, all the better. So, so thank you all for what you are doing. It's been great to it's been great to connect. Oh, that's great. Uh, thank, thank you so you. much. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lori Santos. We mentioned it a number of times during the conversation, and frankly, if you're listening to Being Well, you're probably already familiar with Lori's wonderful podcast, The Happiness Lab. It's truly one of the best ones in the territory, and I would strongly recommend that you check it out. They have a recent series of episodes dedicated to the coronavirus epidemic, and they also have season two coming out soon. If you're interested in the course that Lori teaches at Yale, there's a version of it available online for free. I've checked it out. It has wonderful, wonderful material in it that I strongly recommend. And you can access it again freely through Coursera. I've included a link to that as well in the description of today's podcast. 
We were able to cover really a wide variety of topics with Lori, ranging from how to maintain well-being and happiness during this incredibly challenging time to primate research and what we can learn from our nearest evolutionary cousins. In the moment, Lori really narrowed in on two different points in my reading of them, and see if this jives with what you experienced listening as well. The first is basic practices, simple underlying practices, like getting enough sleep, that become particularly important during a time of particularly high stress. And then second, bigger picture practices around calming the body, maintaining equanimity, finding connection in the little moments of life, and so on. Again, things that are important in everyday life, but are particularly important during a time of high stress. I asked Lori a couple of questions related to her course, Psychology and the Good Life, that she offers at Yale. And one of the things that she mentioned that it's particularly surprising to students when they start the course is the very loose correlation, at best, between more money and more happiness. And then another one that she mentioned that I particularly enjoyed, given my own background, is how disassociated happiness is from traditional academic success, uh, particularly just getting good grades. As you might imagine, students at Yale were not necessarily completely receptive to this piece of information the first time that she would share it, so she tended to get some pushback there. Then Rick and Lori got into a really interesting conversation, at least to me, focused on primate research and what we can learn from our nearest cousins. What are some of the things that monkeys actually are better at than we are? And how can we take those lessons and apply them to our current moment? We closed with Lori offering a really wonderful personal reflection. She was really very self-divulging throughout the conversation, which I thought was great. And I really appreciated how open she was about well-being being an ongoing process. None of us have this thing figured out. We're all working our way through it. And we're all doing the best we can inside our often imperfect human minds and human bodies. So as we come to the end here, I'd like to give you a little reminder about our new Patreon account. You can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast if you would like to support the show. For every episode, I write extremely detailed show notes. We have special full-length videos of most of the episodes that Rick and I do together. We get a lot of input and feedback from our patrons, which helps dictate the direction of the show. And there's a special monthly Q&A episode with Rick and I where we answer listener questions. But more importantly than anything else, when you become a subscriber through Patreon, you'll know that you're helping us create this content and you're supporting us and continuing to do this work, which I deeply appreciate. Also, if you've been enjoying the show, if you could take a moment to rate it, subscribe to it, tell a friend about it, you know, any of those little things, they really, really do help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.